The Courage to Lead, Episode 71. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. Um, I'm having a pretty good week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest on today's show. Today, uh, please welcome Mike Solitro. Mike is a consultative leader who has played a key role in hundreds of real estate transactions. He's a real estate attorney, an associate broker, lean and Six Sigma certified, and twice won Real Estate Information Services Award of Excellence. Mike helps real estate professionals transform their businesses from successful to elite. Good job, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Harlan. Excited to be here. Yeah. So I'm sure you're going to go into it, but briefly, what do you, how do you take them from successful to elite? What do you mean by elite? Yeah, there's a couple of things we do right off the top. We look at all the things that are currently working well for them in their business and see, all right, is there a way to achieve the same results a little more efficiently to try to cut out things that either are not uh, providing positive results for their clients or just are, are a little too much energy? What can we make efficient? And then we look at things that are either not working for some reason, are not being tracked, or that can be done by uh, others, delegated out or uh, you know, supported and we try to make those things uh, effective for the business. So we look at the current business, see what can we make better? What can we uh, you know, do more efficiently? Those are the two things we do up front. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, I will, we'll get more into that, I'm sure, as we talk about your background, how you got started, and uh, what you do helping uh, in the real estate area. But before we get started, I do have 10 questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, these questions were made popular on the TV show Inside the Actor's Studio, where host James Lipton asked these questions of Hollywood stars, film stars, stage stars, TV stars. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. <laughs> so if you're ready, Mike, I've got 10 questions. Uh, Let's do question, it. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Actually. Actually, yes, actually. What is your favorite word? No, I'm kidding. Actually. All right, number two, what is your least favorite word? Uh, I'm going to say a phrase and it's going to be end of the day. Okay. <laughs> Uh, what turns you on? Uh, when someone follows through on what they say they're going to do, which sounds pretty simple, but does not happen all the time. It does not happen all the time, guaranteed. Uh, what turns you off? Uh, when others are unnecessarily rude to each other. Nice. What sound or noise do you love? I'm the dad of three, so quiet. <laughs> all right. And what sound or noise do you hate? This one is a little speci uh, specific, but we have a exhaust fan over the, uh, the hood of our stove. And whenever it is on, no matter what is happening in the kitchen, again, all three kids could be screaming, whatever is going, and I can just hear that fan and it just bothers me for some reason. So that specific <laughs> fan. Very cool. Um, what is your favorite curse word? I think it would be shit. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? This is kind of a fantasy of mine and a ship that certainly have, has sailed, but I always thought I could uh, be a writer for some sort of comedy show. Not, not in front of camera, but I would like to write. Nice. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Uh, 
I would probably something that involves the collection of trash. Uh, I, I would not be good at that. All right. And finally, uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? That's a good one. Uh, just in time. Just in time. <laughs> awesome. Very good. All right. Uh, so, Mike, we're going to get back. We're going to talk a little bit about your uh, consultative leader role and uh, how you help in these different real estate transactions, a little bit about your background, and then we're going to talk about leadership and courage. All right. Sounds good. So we will do that right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And we are back with my guest, Mike Salitro. Mike, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. So tell me a little bit, how do you got, how you got started in real estate? Have you, is that something you always wanted to do? Is that something you started early? Yeah, my uh, first job out of college, I had zero real estate experience. I was moving to New York City and I got a uh, opportunity to work at a uh, firm that put together investment uh, research materials. So showed up my first day, no real estate experience, telephone on the desk and a stack of papers, you know, no computer to be seen. And I, I started panicking. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. So I quickly found out that uh, making phone calls to people who own real estate, invest in real estate uh, are involved. They are A, not interested in talking to someone who has nothing to offer them, nor knows what he's talking about. So I quickly had to learn uh, the ropes, learn what it was like to not sell a product, but uh, information exchange. So quickly provide value to others uh, who had, you know, I had information, they had property, and I quickly learned that if I could share that with them, there was something that I could... Uh, could give them and it would make that conversation a little bit smoother. Nice. So I really just stumbled into to real estate. And um, from there, I loved it and have uh, been, been on a 15 year or so odyssey since then. I've had a chance to wear a lot of different hats in the industry. Right. So you are a, a real estate attorney. I am. Yeah. As from there, I saw a lot of, uh, you know, what I thought was cool. The guys making the uh, Putting the deals together and negotiating, they were they were lawyers. They got to uh, you know, do the fun stuff. So I went to law school with the idea that would help me with contracts, negotiation, and uh, you know, in real estate transactions specifically. Nice. And so you have your own firm now. I, I do. It's uh, you know, I work in kind of tandem with a, a brokerage that uh, I sell real estate as well. So I do the do the two uh, practices kind of together. Got it. Got it. How many people do you have working for you? Uh, it's just the brokerage is large, but it's it's just me as far as the uh, the sales side and the uh, legal side. I would like to grow out the sales side, but I haven't got there yet. Yeah, but the do you have you have a team there that works with you, or are they independents that they kind of help out, or do you do everything on your own? We do have a marketing team that uh, supports us as well as an administrative and management team. But the uh, you know the brokerage piece and the legal piece is me. Yeah, and I was looking at your website. You've got some pretty high class uh, properties listed out there. Are those all your listings? We do. Uh, most of them are, are, are going to fall from under our brokerage. I'm lucky enough to be on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's, uh, nice. it's, a, it's a very uh, popular vacation area. So we've got a lot of second homes, investment properties, uh, people with multiple properties. So 
uh, we do have some beautiful properties here on the Cape. Yeah, they're gorgeous out there. That's awesome. Love that area. Um, and you won a, a real estate information services award. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that goes back to, uh, again, my, my first role out of school. Um, I, I remember the first time I, I won, it was at the uh, end of the year Christmas party. I, I, had, I hadn't uh, attended the year before because I just started, so I didn't know there was an awards or anything. So once they got into it and I was called, it was one of the few times in my life I was legitimately shocked that I had, uh, had been awarded anything. It was kind of the first professional recognition I ever had. And I'm still proud of it to this day because uh, it you know, recognized good work. And it, it really just went back to being involved in something I had very little, you know, no experience with and grew into uh, a valuable part of that team and uh, something that really is the foundation for what I'm doing today. Very cool. Now, do you work with uh, buyers or sellers or both? Uh, both. Um, the brokerage side, mostly sellers, uh, but when uh, the legal side, Massachusetts is an attorney state. So I do work with a lot of borrowers as well, uh, refinancing and purchasing property. Yeah. Same down here in Georgia. I'm in Atlanta. And yeah, we have to go, everything goes through an attorney. We're out in California. Everything was done just at the, the real estate offices, which is a little different. Um, so when you're working with um, sellers, uh, is there certain things that they do that hurt them? in the the pricing of their home or or in the the sales of their home or is there anything that you've seen that uh you would like warn them hey don't do this yeah that's a good question there are several things that can hurt or help and you know you hit on one price that you know the my, my lawyerly answer for most questions like that is it depends is yes. that uh, it really <laughs> i was a consultant really, <laughs> that was our answer to everything somebody asked you the time you say well that depends right yes. where are you <laughs> Uh, you know, if you over or underprice a house, it can it can hurt you in time it stays on market versus what you actually get from the buyer as far as a final purchase price. So you always want to purchase in a way that's competitive for the property, and sometimes that means pricing it at market. Sometimes it means pricing it under if you're um, looking to have multiple bidders. Generally, I, I don't like that strategy. So my starting point would be to accurately price a property and see what the market dictates from there. Um, in this in this current uh, landscape, I, I've seen sellers receive a full multiple times. I've seen sellers receive a full uh, priced offer and then hold on their response for more buyers to or more potential buyers to come in to start bidding against each other, um, which is really disheartening to buyers. Can be frustrating, and uh, you know, I I, I won't uh, I won't negatively uh, look at a seller who who acts in that way, but. It, it is hard to uh, to get a buyer excited about a property that's happened to them a couple of times. So yeah. uh, for the pricing specifically, I, my strategy generally is to price it right and then see what the market uh, uh, responds to. Yeah. But the market up there, I'm sure, is is kind of is like it is down here. We don't have a lot of product on the market down here. So people are going in with either full price officer or or multiple, you know, um, increases in the in the price right out you have a house for sale for 300,000. I'll come in and offer you 350 just to try to, you know, preempt everybody and stuff. Do you get that a lot up there? We do. And that's, that's kind of the interesting strategic piece, whether working with buyers or sellers is that um, it's not always money. I mean, money is the answer to most every question, mm -hmm. but sometimes, and especially here, I've got, I've had this happen a couple of times this summer where I've got sellers who, you know, I would like to spend one last summer in my home before I move. So sometimes timing is even more important, you know, using that example of 300, you know, I want 300,000 for my house, but if I can stay here until the end of August or, you know, middle of September, 
uh, that's as valuable as that 50 grand to me. So mm-hmm. if I don't have to move out or if I can work some sort of uh, rental agreement on the back end after we close, that's valuable. So if you're representing a buyer before, you know, again, more money, always you can all, yeah. you know, is, is useful. But if you get to know why the sellers are selling, what their next move is, talk to the listing agent, you might be able to pick up something that makes your offer more valuable besides just throwing money on it. And when, when listing a property, you know, make sure that all buyers know what is important uh, to you or what's driving the sale. Absolutely. Just having that, the ability to exchange that information again. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point. You know, talk to the, the seller, talk to the buyer, find out exactly what their motivation is, right? If, if it's like, yeah, I need to sell, but I really don't want to be out of here until X. That's, that's great information to know. can help you put together an offer. It's nice. What about seller or uh, buyers? Is there something that buyers can do to, to help their, um, their purchase? Yeah. Again, going back to knowing the seller situation, who, anytime there's a purchase, there's leverage involved. Why is a seller selling? Why are you looking to buy? Do you, you know, anytime you need to act from a spot of, I must do this, or this must happen in this amount of time, you're sacrificing some leverage or you're not working from a position of strength for the most part. So if you're a buyer and you're like, look, I just took a new job. I need to buy a house in two weeks. You're going to have to make some compromises. So you're going to uh, have to understand where those compromises are going to be. And one of the first exercises I do with most of my buyers is I just take a white piece of paper, put down two lines, and I've got three columns. And on the top, I write down price, I write down condition, and I write down location. You know, and we just go in. You know, what must be in each of those buckets? Yeah. What would you like to see? And then what are deal breakers? And we'll quickly see that usually price is the one that needs to uh, be altered. That if we want all the things, the other two sides, we're going to need to make some changes. So it's it's good to understand how those those three areas both uh, encapsulate an entire transaction as well as uh, play off each other. Yeah, because it all goes into the price, right? You can you can get everything you're asking for, but the price is going to go up, right? Or if you're willing to compromise a little, that price can come down, but you have to be realistic about it. It can. The interesting thing working here in the Cape is we've got properties, again, two, two to 300,000 to an excess of, of 10, 20 million dollars. And very rarely, if ever, will you see someone say, you know what, I'm getting exactly what I want. Like that does not exist at any price point. You are going to have to compromise on something. Um, so just understanding that as a buyer can be, and the more, the more times you've been involved in real estate transactions, the number of purchases, you kind of understand that at 2 million, at 200,000, at 25 million, you're going to make compromises. It's just uh, those compromises are different at different price points. Absolutely. Yeah. I sold real estate in California for a few years. And that's what I used to do is sit with the, the buyer and ask them, you know, what are the must haves, should haves, and then nice to have, you know, these are things we absolutely have to have at least three bedrooms, four bedrooms, whatever. Some things would be nice. And then other things, you know, it's like, uh, if it comes, that's great. Right. But you have to know where you're starting from. Um, now you're a, what do you do? You coach um, real estate professionals. Is that how you help them? Tell me about that. Yeah. Working both on the brokerage and legal side, I get to see kind of the start of a transaction to the finish line at the closing table. So I see the handoffs. I, I have seen where things can get dropped and, uh, you know, sitting there, I get to hear the almost horror stories, the horror stories, or that I wish things went different, or this is how it could have happened. Uh, so I spent a good amount of time in corporate America. I worked on internal consulting teams and uh, understood, you know, process systems, how to, uh, you know, continuous improvement. And I saw a real need for that in real estate, both with my experience, as well as what my strengths were. So my coaching at Accomplished RE is to 
help real estate professionals, real estate agents fortify their business operations. Because I found real estate agents really good at sales, uh, not as strong at client experience or building that back-end business operation. So that's what we really focus on, the um, how to put kind of the principles, the systems in place that you're not starting from scratch to uh, make each deal uh, new or to to do it all over again without uh, you know kind of recreating the wheel. Yeah, and what's the, what's the toughest part about that? Is it the data? Is it the customer facing side? What what usually do you work with them on? We um, we have four areas that we focus on, and usually it's some combination of client. Uh, start we start off with mission and goal setting. So why do you do what you do, and what are you looking to achieve? We then go into alignment with what you know your office, your brokerage, your practice. How are you aligned or, or organizationally? We then look at client experience and problem solving. You know what what are you providing? What do your clients want? How do you get it to them? And then when ultimate when things go wrong, how do you handle it? Yeah. And usually that second half, the client experience and problem solving, is where we'll see things that um, are are either ignored ball gets dropped or things could be better and the situation that i think of i recently had i was had the uh i guess certain the coincidence to talk to both a real estate agent and a current customer of theirs on the same day talk to the agent you know how is your client you know client experience support yes it's the most important thing i want all my clients to be happy to be informed to know what's going on and you know how often is that happening all the time with all my clients you know it was yeah forefront of his practice later that day i talked to a current client who was in the middle of a transaction and she was hysterical because uh things were happening she wasn't she wasn't what she felt to be properly communicated with that there was everything was one fire drill to the next and that uh, since the you know just just as a kind of a step back in real estate you kind of in a a high pressure or high intense situation once a contract is signed, then there's a good amount of time that passes from the the offer to the purchase and sale to the actual closing. Right. So it's uh, very easy for a real estate agent or realtor to kind of go to the next deal once each of those uh, kind of mileposts are met and right. to kind of forget that the people involved in that transaction, that's the forefront of their mind. This is what's most important to them at all times. Uh, so, you know, it's going back to that that client. She just felt that once the purchase and sale had been signed, like I'll see in, in four weeks at the uh, at the closing table, and that she'd kind of been left holding the bag. And this was the wow. same; these are the same two parties in the same transaction had completely wow. different experience. And I, I kind of joke in talking with others that that real estate agent won't know until uh, you know eight years from now when she goes to buy or sell another property, and he's going to think, well, you know, I sent her a magnet every year with my name, my contact yeah. information. On it. What else am I supposed to do? I, I thought she was happy. So a lot of times it's just getting that feedback. Uh, being open to it and then understanding that each client might be looking for a little bit of a different thing. In this case, it was just simple. Hey, here's what's going to happen this week. Mm -hmm. Here's what's happening over the next month. Here's how we're going to plan versus I need you at home in 20 minutes because the uh, fire department is going to be there to do their inspection. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's just that understanding. Well, and, and the communication, you know, I used to hate that where you would have just this gap you know, like you said, you get the contract signed and suddenly they would disappear on you. And it's like, hang on, <laughs> this is still going for me, right? Got a lot of questions, everything like that. So keeping that communication going is important. Um, Absolutely. The communication is a big piece. And the other thing is, is being in the industry, we see this every day, all of the time. When you sell a property, you might do it every few years, every, you know, it might be 20 years in between. So things change and you're not, you're not accustomed to it. So uh, it's just, it's helpful to get uh, to help with fresh eyes who are just not, who are not in, involved in it daily. Exactly. Yeah. I try to talk to my clients about, you know, the frustration 
is the difference between expectation and reality. And that happens a lot for buyers or sellers. You know, the expectation is I'm going to get a paper signed and everything's going to be done. It's like the reality is there's a lot of stuff that goes into that closing, right? You've got that 30, 40 days, 45 days uh, to, to get all these uh, in, inspections done and everything like that. And anything can happen at any point in time, right? You got you to make sure that they understand here's what's going to happen. Here's the potential for what may happen and I'll be available, you know? Absolutely. Wow. So you probably being, I mean, from start to finish, you've probably seen a lot of crazy transactions. What's the craziest thing that you've ever had to deal with? That's a good question. Craziest thing that I've seen. I was actually talking about it today. I had a closing earlier and uh, it's it's happened a couple of times. Anytime that there is a real estate transaction, I shouldn't say any, sometimes when there's a real estate transaction and there's a a husband and wife separating or divorcing as part of the transaction, the the terms that they can have with one another, their current or their next situations. And the the two that I'm, I'm thinking of is, I had one where they had agreed to uh, just refinance the property, but the uh, soon-to-be ex-husband's housing was not going to be available for, I think, seven weeks. So when we signed the paperwork, it was uh, that the they were still living under the same roof. They both had begun dating others that they were comfortable talking to me about because we had individual appointments, of course. Uh, we, didn't, we couldn't all sit at the same table, but they were living in the same place, dating other people, and basically counting down the seconds until they didn't have to be in, under right. you know, at the same place. But based on their current financial situation, it wasn't viable for one of them to move out. Uh, so we ended up getting it done, but it was just that uh, it was just made for interesting living arrangements for a couple of months while they, wow. uh, they uh, got to that finish line and started a new chapter. Time. Yeah. Yes. Well, either as the agent or the closing attorney, a lot of times you're in the middle of these different conflicts and stuff like that, right? Wow. Yes, you can be. And that's that's one of the one of the things I like about uh, being a real estate attorney versus a quote unquote real a real attorney as I like to think about it. Uh, most of the parties, uh, attorneys, buyers, real estate agents are collaborative and that they want a, a transaction to have, you know, somebody wants to buy, someone wants to sell, they've got together, they've gotten to this point. But uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times people want it on their terms or they want to dictate how things are going to be. So kind of making that happen, being the uh, ironing out those, uh, those kinks or making the, uh, you know, resolving those conflicts is something that I take pride in. And uh, I do enjoy when you can get a situation with people who sometimes won't even look at each other to, uh, to come together and uh, make a deal go forward. Very nice. So you say over 15 years you've been doing this? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's surprising at this point, but yes, that's good. I usually, I mean, real estate always seems like it's a high turnover. You know, you got people who come in, they realize it's a lot more work than you think, you know, and they they bail on it and stuff. But being around fifteen years, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's um, they do at least. Uh, my brokerage does a good job of kind of beating you over the head when you start saying like this is a difficult. This is a difficult role. It is, there's the high turnover. Don't expect to uh, start and sell multiple properties in the first few months. As a matter of fact, don't expect to make any money your first three years. So uh, you need to have a network built up, uh, have have a plan in place and we'll support you with X, Y, Z. But it's one of those things that uh, you do need to have a, a kind of a strategy. And that's what's with yeah. uh, it's helped me. My, my background is, I don't want to say unique, but different than most where I've got uh, kind of multiple balls in the air. And that helps me both 
understand my market and serve my clientele better because I have different strengths and um, I, I, I like doing the different things keeps me at my best and keeps me at my sharpest. Sure. But I like that you start off with the mission and goals with your buyers and sellers to make sure you're all on the same page. You know, what specifically are you hoping to get out of this and how can I help you do that? I like that. Very cool. Yeah, it, wor- it works. If you can get, if you get buyers, buyers, sellers, and you know, uh, uh, my specifically my real estate uh, realtor clients to tell me why they do what they do, you can kind of get a glimpse into um, in, into their practice because you know they might they might be able to kind of hide or um, conceal other things, but if you ask them what they do or who they do it for or, or what their goals are, it becomes a little more transparent what their interests are or can be. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, do you have a, a success or a win you could you could share of somebody you've helped coach from maybe failing to successful and up to that elite level you're talking about? Yeah, I've, I've actually I've got a, a client that I'm working with currently, and I won't say failing, but uh, it was kind of eye opening when we dug into uh, her current business that uh, she had a successful background, not in real estate, made the transition and very uh, diligent, very hard worker, always kind of busy, productive. And as we dug into it, we found that the vast majority of her, both her clients and her uh, prospecting and her targets were on the buy side. And that she found that she was spending a lot of time looking at properties, working with buyers and that um, she liked it, but wasn't sure if that was something she wanted long-term. So we focused on, Hey, let's, let's focus on, on listing. Cause there's all types of uh, uh, cliches in, in real estate. Uh, those who list last, that's, that's what's one. So we focused on how do we get a, what's the best way, what's the best strategy to become a seller's agent. And within the last few weeks, uh, she got her first listing it's under contract and it has opened up both our, our kind of uh strategy sessions is all right we want more listings as opposed to you know kind of running around with buyers i not only do i like doing this it's it's made me more consistent money so how can i make more, you know get that to become my my normal or my focus so we have uh just taken a more let's say conscious approach into who we're targeting how we're getting uh, word of mouth to hey i'm thinking about selling my properties i need to call this this agent as opposed to uh, are you thinking about buying a property? Let's let's go into it because a good a good story that or a good thing I like to share is being in a, a second home market. I'll have plenty of people say, "Oh, I'd love to own a house on the Cape." And it's like, "Oh, I hear that. Oh, I got a buyer client." But what they don't necessarily tell you, or what I failed to ask, was if I find the right house, and it might take me twenty years. So being in, you know being a real estate agent, you get paid when deals close. So you right. can work with that buyer for twenty years, and you might enjoy the work you're doing. You might. Uh, give them a great experience, great service. But if they don't purchase a property, you're not going to get paid. And it, it's more of a hobby at that point than, than a profession. Yeah. Um, so just to be cognizant of that, that when you've got a listing or you're selling a property, you've got, you've got it in hand. You are in control of the deal, which you kind of don't always have when working with certain buyers. Exactly. So what do you recommend then for people who are working with buyers? How do you get them to commit or how do you get them to admit, hey, this is something I want to do within the next couple of months? Yeah, that kind of goes back to a couple of things that we've talked about. The first thing is understanding what their motivations are, being able to ask them questions that either back up support or, or tell you. So if it is, 
you know, I'm looking for a property and if it's the right one, I'll buy. If not, you know, I've got other houses, other, I don't need to do this. Okay. Does that work with what I'm looking to do? So really just comes back what, as, as an agent, what do I want to do? Do I want to provide services to people I like to work with? Okay. Or do I, I want to work with uh, buyers who are ready, willing, and able to purchase property? And then going back to that simple exercise I talked about, what are they looking for? It's like, okay, well, we've, we've outlined your musts and your wants and the nice, nice is to have. Here are three properties that fit those. Do these work? Um, you know, they, they kind of do. Okay, well, since, since we're not ready to move forward, let's, re, let's revisit the list. And that way you've got a clear example in front of them that says we, we are either ready to move forward or not. And you've got to make those decisions. And sometimes not working with the client or sure. deciding to uh, take a break is just as uh, advantageous as, as you know, continuing to move forward, where it's like this is not working and um, you know, it might be best for both sides. Yeah. And they have to be willing to walk away from that buyer if they're not re ready to make a, a move right now. Right. Cause like you said, you could waste weeks taking them around, showing them different properties and not getting anything out of it. Um, do you, is there a recommendation? I mean, do you think that new real estate agents should, you know, consider an attorney. A lot of times you'll hear attorneys, they'll work as a, a defender for a while and then they'll make the jump over to the prosecution side. Right in real estate, should people work with buyers first to kind of get an idea of how to work with buyers and then switch over to the listing side? Or I think, you, you, tell me I think you know the answer to that question. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Perfect. It, it, you really where, what is your background? If you're coming in as, you know, no professional background and this is your first career, I don't think you've got the, you are going to have necessarily the network, the experience to make that decision. Say, all right, I'm only going to work with sellers. Like, well, that's great. Uh, Cause I don't think anybody's going to want to work with you. So that's, that's fine. But if you come in, like, for example, and you come in from the construction industry and it's, I've been building homes for 10 years, I'm ready to sell. It's like, well, you know, uh, you know a lot about the construction, about what it takes to put a home up. How can you translate that into helping people sell their homes? You have a ready-made network. Uh, are you very active in the community? Yeah, I'm involved with three or four nonprofits. I know, okay, so we can focus in on those people who want to sell their homes or um, you know, I moved here from X market and a lot of people are coming. I have a pipeline of other people who might want to come in. So it might make sense to, to focus on those relocation buyers. So it really matters on what your circumstances are, what your experiences, and as, as most things, who you know, because uh, that's who likely you're going to start off working with. And then like a, like a snowball rolling downhill, it's going to grow from there, depending on the level of uh, service that you provide. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So tell me about your leadership style. If, if I was to ask people that you work with or, or work in the office area, the brokerage and things like that, what kind of leader would they say you are? I think they'll start off by saying that I'm collaborative and that I let my personality, which is laid back, uh, kind of dictate the, at least the demeanor and the style of the team where, and it even goes back to uh, what turn we asked, I think, well, what turns you on? Mm -hmm. uh, if, we have clear expectations of this is going to happen at this time and it does happen. And I, to me, a, a good leader can just make sure the framework's in place to make those things happen. When you start getting into, well, this needs to, you know, this needs to happen at this point and you have to do it this way because it's my way. And you know, I'm going to check in. I think that's when micromanaging comes in and things start to fall apart. So uh, for me, being a good leader is to understand beginning, start, there's going to be many different ways to get there. And I want to empower my team to get to the finish line. I want to support them to get there. So 
Uh, that's always been my approach. Uh, one thing that has been difficult and is can always kind of a learning experience for me is that uh, when things don't go as planned or when deadlines are missed, to me, that's that's the end of the world. Like if I say that I'm going to do something, I must get it done or I'm going to make a contingency that before that happens. And I found over the last 15, 20 years, that is not the case with everybody. So being as crystal clear up front that this is the expectation, uh, A is going to happen by Thursday at 3 p.m. If it does not, we need to have a contingency in place by Thursday at 2 p.m. Hard stop. If we can't work on those terms, my leadership style is not going to work because now I went from laid back fun to uh, I, I've lost control of my ship. So that's I think that's really important. Absolutely. No, good point. Good point. Um, so courage. Where did you find the courage to to set out on your own? A lot of people, like I said, are kind of into the nine to five thing. They want somebody else to take all the stress for them, make the decisions for them, just collect a paycheck, come and go. They're, they're eight to five and they're done. You chose a different route. Where did you find that courage? Yeah, for me, it was uh, incremental over time. The When I was in college, when I heard, you know, entrepreneur or working on your own, the thing that I always thought of was, yeah, I don't want to be the one who has to fix the copier when it breaks. Like, that's that's not their response. And, that, that was, and as foolish as that sounds now, that was my concern. It's like, you know, that's, I want to, I want to be at a big company where I don't, you know, I can just do my job and that that's all I have to worry about. And then having that experience, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about the copier because there's there's a team for that. Uh, but there were a lot of things that uh, I liked about corporate America, and there were things that uh, I'm not good at, and I never was good at uh, office politics and, and bureaucracy. I was really bad at. Uh, uh, I'm being kind of in that environment pushed me in, again incrementally to I need to do something for myself. And ultimately, uh, one day, you know, I was a high performer. My team worked well. I got several promotions and was like, well, we are, we are relocating the department. Do you want to go? And I talked it over with my wife. It's like, I like my job. I like where I am. They're good to me. But no, I don't, I don't love it. And I don't want to move for it. Uh, so that was kind of step one. And then having the ability to kind of step back from there, take consulting and project type work um, and have more more say in who I work with, what type of environments they are, and kind of dictating the terms was something that became, uh, you know, more and more uh, advantageous to me. And something's like I, I like this, and my skill set are valuable to a lot of different people. And having the ability to kind of have that control of my schedule, have the the say over when, who, and, and what I'm working on uh, is is great. So that Absolutely. that that gave me the. Uh, you know, the interest in to do it more often. And really, I want to say that courage came from when we had our first child, I guess the, the, the entire experience was, uh, was all the things. It was surreal. It was difficult. It was, you know, all the, uh, all the things that you hear that, that it's a miracle that, it, and it was one of the, one of the kind of flashpoints was like, I can do this. I, 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 we clearly are doing important things. I'm responsible for more than just my life here. So I, I can, I can do this on my own and it's being, you know, to me, courage is doing, doing the hard thing. Mm -hmm. And part of that is being okay with failure. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that being at a big company that it was, it, it, I was not insulated, insulated from failure, but there was, there was plenty of um, stop gaps in place where, you know, there would be something else that would, would catch what I was working on or that there would be a, 
but when you when you work you know for yourself with yourself there's it's you so you sure. are going to make mistakes you know ultimately uh, you know, things either won't get done, won't get done as well. And you need to learn to clean them up and realize that, Hey, you know what? The sun's coming up tomorrow. Things are still moving forward that there are, you know, it's very important, but there are things that are, are a little more important. So it really helps the perspective as well. So that's a long and rambling answer. But... <laughs> <That's>, no, <laughs> good stuff though. Cause I was thinking, you know, that's, I think that's one thing that keeps people away from going independent or being an entrepreneur is there is no place to hide. If something goes wrong, it's you, you know, especially if you're a solopreneur, if you've got a team around you, again, it, you're the boss, everything rolls, you know, to you. But a lot of people don't want to get started because there's no place to hide. I used to work with a guy years and years ago, Lockheed Aircraft out in California. He almost burnt down one of the buildings, but he was covered because he was in the union and, you know, blah, 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 you know, things like that don't happen if you're a solopreneur, you know, you have to, you have to be able to, like I said, take whatever steps are necessary to get back on track and keep moving forward. Um, there are different types of courage that we have to tap into on a, a daily basis, whether personally, professionally, um, intellectual courage, uh, social courage, moral courage, discipline courage, right? Having a plan and sticking to it. Is there a type of courage you think is, is most important for an entrepreneur? Yeah, I thought this over and I, and I don't want to go back to it depends, but I really think the situation dictates which of those is the most valuable in the moment. Um, some of us are most comfortable with certain things. So if it's in intellectual uh, courage, it's, or you know, just using moral courage as, as you know, I know right from wrong. And that's most people can say, yeah, I, I know, you know, I know what, but where courage comes in that kind of briefly touched about it. It's, it's doing the hard thing. It's you know, knowing what's right, but it's not easy to step up and say something or make the situation stop or to be the answer. Uh, so I think as a leader, one of the most important things is, is not only understanding what's right and wrong, but how to get to, to get to the point where it no longer is wrong. And the courageous part might be, uh, you know, I need physical courage. I need to go in there and stop something from physically happening or, uh, you know, moral that this situation, while it's gray, I need to go ahead and, and step in, do what's necessary and help out. Even if this makes me unpopular, even if everyone else in my team is telling me, this is not your job, this is not your responsibility. This is more than you can do. And you, when you, when you kind of step out and you make that assessment that I, I need to do what's right here, uh, kind of being able to follow through. Uh, I, I don't remember where I, I heard it, but everyone's heard of fight or flight that that's, uh, the, the, um, the instinct is like, well, there's a third and it's freeze and your mind experiences the same thing with all three. It's just how you train your body. And a lot of us, I, unfortunately, I think default to that freeze that, uh, something's happening and I'm not going to just do anything about it. Hope that somebody else steps in or hope the situation goes away or, you know, it's not, it's not my problem. So I think being able to have the courage for whatever situations in front of you to do the hard thing that others may not want to do, don't can't do, or haven't done before because they just, you know, haven't had the exposure to it. Yeah. And you're right. Courage is an action. You know, I can, I can have brave thoughts, right. Sitting on my couch, watching TV, but if I don't act on them, then it's really not courageous. And I think you're right. Having that, knowing that it's unpopular, knowing you're going against the grain and stuff, but saying, Hey, this is what I believe in. Here's what I know to be right and standing up and actually doing something about it. Um, what type of courage do you think comes easiest for you? 
the easiest for me would be uh, kind of just falling into doing what's what's right for others because i know what bothers me the most is when i go back to kind of the beginning when when people don't treat each other well uh it it bothers me and i don't have kind of a good genesis story for that it's just i i, I don't like it and uh so for me uh being respectful treating each you know treating others as they deserve or as they want to be treated has always been important for me so that part uh, has always come easier for me. Uh, you know, certain situations it's more difficult, but that uh, just you know, doing the right thing for others, even if it's not what might be my best interest or what might not be easy or what others are not doing, that that's always kind of my first thought. Uh, the other thing that you know, as as you mentioned, that courage is action. That's uh, that's very well put. Is that sometimes stepping back from doing the wrong thing, it takes courage to say, "Hey, I messed up there," or "I didn't do the right thing." Sure. That it's that's just as hard, if not harder, you know, kind of just retreat and say, well, hopefully nobody noticed or there's, but you know, picking up the pieces or just fixing or, or pass wrong. I think it takes a lot of courage for that. And that's something that I've gotten better at over time that, you know, I, the other thing uh, that I've kind of incrementally seen is uh, making mistakes hand in hand with failure. It's like, well, you know, I don't ever want to do anything wrong. Well, you can act like that, but you're not going to do too many great things either. You're going to do right. really small things. So right. you've got to be okay with making mistakes, admitting them, say, Hey, I messed this up. You know, not doing that again and again, but it's like, all right, here's what I want to do differently next time. And kind of having the courage to kind of take that next step and know, all right, this might not work out, but that's okay. That means either I'm going to do something great or I'm going to fall on my face and learn. I shouldn't do that again. Absolutely. Yeah, courage sometimes is acting, and and other times it's it's not acting, right? It's it's knowing when when to apply that. That's a good good point. Um, so if you had to do it all over again, would you do things the same way? Would you follow the same path? Would you do something differently? That's a good question. I try to be uh, with the mindset that I don't want to have you know, any you know major regrets of you know I wish I did things this way or. And my, uh, at least my professional experience has been uh, one that is not duplicated by many. So I would think that if I did it again, it probably would be different. Um, the one thing that I really would like to have, have uh, grasped at a younger age is how little I know and how little <laughs> uh, that is in comparison to others and how much I hope to, to learn over time. Because there are things every day, it's like, oh, uh, I had no idea or wow, I was just flat out wrong about that. Um, so that would be one thing that I would change is just understand it's like, not only do you not know everything, you know, very, very little. And that, uh, just the idea that every other person you meet knows one, at least one thing you don't, and your goal should be in your conversations and your collaborations to find out what that is and to never stop learning. Uh, so I definitely did not value that, uh, enough when I was younger, and that would be something I would do different just to, to have that mindset that to you know, growth and to not stop learning. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that uh, intellectual courage, you know, being able to set aside the knowledge you do have to make room for new knowledge, right? Um, as a business coach working with my clients, I don't want to coach them on 30 year old knowledge. So I'm trying to stay up on new things that are coming out, see if there's some, something that may apply, you know, to them to help them and stuff like that. So I'm always, always learning, reading books, attending, you know, seminars and things like that. So yeah, good point. Um, so if you had to give, um, encouragement, I guess, to a new entrepreneur or something like that, what words of wisdom would you share with them? 
What I often will tell, um, you know, or the conversations I'll see, it's like, well, yeah, you know, I see you're doing your your own thing. It looks great. You know, it's it, it must be it must be great not to have to work for anybody or you know, kind of doing your own thing. Um, and the conversation we'll have is that that's not really the case. Is that more now than ever, I rely on the people around me both to for, to become my clients, uh, to be my network for future opportunities for collaboration. So. While I'm not part of a large organization, I rely very heavily on others where it's not, you know, I work for myself. I don't talk to others. I don't need to uh, be concerned what's important for others, whether they're clients, whether they're people that I'm working with or, you know, doing projects alongside. Uh, so just that idea of just, just because you're an entrepreneur, it can be very lonely at times, but you need other people, other organizations, other groups to support you, support what you're doing and kind of move that idea forward. I mean, unless you've got a, a very uh, specific or a very uh, fantastic business that you're running, you don't need to, but you're, you're always, even if you are a solopreneur, you need to rely on others either to buy what you're selling, support what you're selling and to, to kind of prop you up, get, get word out there. So it's, it's kind of a, just a, in a different way that you're uh, collaborating with others. Absolutely. Good job. Um, so what's next for you? You seem to have accomplished a lot. You've got a lot of things going on, a lot of balls in the air. What's on the, what's on the horizon? Yeah, I, I'm really hoping to continue growing my coaching business. It's some of the most rewarding work that I've done because all of my coaching is one-on-one. -on -one. So when you kind of spend time on, on calls like this, where you're, you're figuring out, here's where you are, here's where you want to go. How can we do it? And you get there it's some of the most, and it's not you, it's your work. You're helping somebody else get there. It is, uh, again, as cliched as it can be, some of the most rewarding work that, that's out there. So I really love that. I would like to do more of it. Um, my, uh, my brokerage business, I'd like to also get a, a team in place because uh, a lot of the coaching I do can, can kind of be parlayed into uh, working with, with other real estate agents in, in a team setting. So I know where my strengths are. I know where my kind of management style can be best utilized. And I, and I like to get there um, and I'm slowly working toward that. So that's kind of what's, uh, what's on the immediate horizon for me. Very cool. Good job. So Mike, if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about your uh, consulting work and stuff, where can they find you? What's your website? The best two places for me, accomplishedre.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, Mike Salitro. LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, good to hear about you. I, I, like I said, I love the area up there in the Cape and uh, good luck with everything you've got going on. Thank you, Arlen. I appreciate it. And this was, uh, this was fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And listeners, hope you guys enjoyed this. Hope you're taking notes um, and definitely, you know, check out accomplishedre.com and follow Mike, what he's doing. And if you like this, make sure you share this with your family, friends, and colleagues, and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan Singh. So long for now. 